Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com slash go slash security podcast and navigate to the Tax Security Show section. In this week's episode, we discuss the life of a tax case and transparent firewall mode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number three of the Tax Security Show, where our panel of experts discuss all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, new features, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco Technical Assistance Security Teams. The goal of this show is to provide useful troubleshooting tips and information directly from the Cisco Tax Security Teams, and we want to give you some of the knowledge and techniques that we use every day in the TAC to solve some of uh, your problems. So let's go ahead and kick things off. I'm your host, Jay Johnston. I've been with the Firewall TAC team in Research Triangle Park, uh, North Carolina, for about five years. I have a security CCIE, and with me in the studio today, we have the same great panel of firewall experts. I'll start by introducing Blaine Dreyer, who is also a sec- security CCIE, and he's been with Attack for five years. So, uh, Blaine, what have you been up to lately? I am extremely tired. Every morning and evening, I've been moving stuff from my old uh, condo to my uh, the house that I'm in right now. And I've started at about 7 a.m. every day, and I come to work, and then I get out, and I go, and I move more stuff until about 10 o'clock at night. The moving process is pretty terrible. I mean, you have to just block off a chunk of your life and just consider it gone. I don't mind the big stuff. It's the little stuff that's left behind. Looking at your, I'm looking at your shin right now, and you have an enormous purple bruise about the size of yes. a tennis ball. So what happened there? It's one of my mini in my collection, but um, I don't know what happened. I've forgotten where I hit it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, good luck with the move. When are you going to get done with that? Do you think? Um, definitely by this weekend. Okay. It should be cleaned up. I, I would help you, but I'm just so busy. Yeah, I put out that invite last weekend. Nobody. Okay. Yeah. Did you offer free beers? I did. <laughs> and pizza. No. And those who showed up got it. I was working that weekend. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, no, everyone has excuses. All right, well, good luck. Um, <laughs> and every weekend there. Hope, hope you get done by this weekend, definitely. No more bruises. Next up, we have Magnus Mortensen. And as always, it's time to check with him how his CCIE, how his CCIE quest is coming. So, Magnus, uh, what updates do you have for us today? Well, uh, I'd like to announce that I have no update yet. Uh, I still haven't scheduled the retake. Um, to be honest, kind of just finishing up some of the uh, arrangements for a wedding I've got coming up in September. Who are you marrying? Well, future wife. <laughs> my, yeah, my future wife. Um, well, her name is Amber, and she's wonderful. Um, but yeah, I just haven't gotten around to scheduling a, a retake yet. Uh, you know, trying to still drum up some study materials and some information to go forwards. But no, I haven't, I haven't scheduled it yet. So really, no, no IE update yet. Uh, in time, in time. Gotcha. So basically, you're prioritizing your upcoming once-in-a-lifetime wedding over the CCIE security. I don't know if that's a smart move. Once you get married, you never have time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hold off the wedding. (laughs) I'll call everybody back. Uh, I'll let them know. But no, it's uh, in time. It will get done. In time, it will get done. Okay. Well, we'll ask again next week. We'll find out where you're at. Uh, last but not least, we've got David White. He's a CCIA and an escalation engineer with Attack. He's been with Cisco nine years. And last episode, Dave was called away on jury duty. So how um, how did that go, Dave? Actually, it was pretty uh, pretty interesting. I was uh, I was actually excited to be called away. I mean, I'm fairly old in age now. <laughs> I'm in my thirties uh, um, and never been called for jury duty before. So it was exciting to go and see the process and uh, how it unfolds. Unfortunately, I didn't actually get to sit on a trial, so I sat in a room 
all day with uh, 150 of my closest uh, neighbors in my county, waiting for two trials to go on and see if they would need the call in a jury pool. And one of them pleaded out, apparently they uh, plead out during the trial instead of, uh, you know, before they actually go to all that effort. And the other one never got far enough along to call in the jury pool, so they invited 150 new neighbors in for the following day. So I've never, I've never done this before, but it sounds like it was not as glamorous as the cop dramas on TV. No, you basically sit in a room and uh, watch the TV on a wall, kind of like a, a jail cell like <laughs> thing. You can't leave. You sit there all day long, and then you leave at the end of the day. Do you know what the crimes are, or do they not let you talk they, about they, that? They don't even tell you about the trials, no. Oh. Were you interviewed by any lawyers to like, nope. find out if you were? No, nope. we just sat in a room all day. Did you get paid? Uh, yes, I think I got nine dollars and fifty cents. That's pretty good. Yes, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> impressive. It's more than we make. Yeah. What did? Well, I mean, was it good TV programming? Uh, no. Days of Our Lives. Hey, actually, I actually uh, read uh, some magazines that have been stacking up, and I never have time to read. So I actually enjoyed it. Everyone else was complaining, but when do you have time to sit there with no internet, uh, no computer, and uh, just books and magazines to read? Did you so. Twitter? I told you to Twitter. I didn't have internet access. So. Okay. Well, let's get on with the show. Um, the first uh, topic we're going to talk about today is our non-technical topic, and it's going to be the life of a tax service request. So uh, we're all in the TAC. You know, we take, um, we take cases that customers submit uh, to address their network problems. And so what we wanted to do is uh, spend a short amount of time today talking about sort of that process and, um, you know, how we take cases, how we work on them, how we get them closed out, and also some tips we can give you guys about um, how to submit data and, and work with your tech engineer to hopefully get your issue resolved quicker. So the first thing I'm going to say is that um, there's two ways to open a tech case. You can uh, do it over the web or you can call into our Mate 1-800 number. And i got to tell you that opening cases via the web is usually faster and it usually gets to the right team first. Because when you go to the website uh, and you uh, enter in all your data, um, you get uh, pass through a series of drop-down menus for your technology and sub-technology. And usually that's a good way to get your case routed to the, the right engineer at the right time. Not only that, but you get to write your own problem description. You're not dictating it to someone else, right, exactly. which makes it a lot clearer. And at that same time, you can, as we'll talk about, you can upload files while you open the case instead of opening the case on the phone, talking to somebody, getting the case created, and then you having to go somewhere or wait for attack engineer to give you a call or send you an email in order to get the first bit of data. And that's usually a, you know, a slowdown in the, in the process. Okay. And, and when that case is created, you know, we assign a case severity number to the case. Yeah, we, there are essentially four different levels, uh, one through four, uh, one being the most severe. We save that for, you know, whole network down critical issues where uh, a large part of your infrastructure and primarily your business is affected adversely by whatever the problem is. We call these, you know, P1 network down scenarios. Severity 2 is not necessarily network down. Your entire network's not, you know, collapsing around you, but certain parts or certain functions within your business are severely affected by whatever the issue is. You're still able to carry on most of your business functions, but there's still some severe degradation within your network. Severity 3, uh, minor degradation, a small issue, but it's still, for the most part, impacting business. Uh, and Severity 4 is reserved specifically for stuff like configuration help or uh, setting something up new that wasn't in place before. At that point, you don't actually have any business impact since whatever you're setting up obviously wasn't set up to begin with, so how could it impact business? So we reserve uh, Severity 1 and Severity 2 for those kind of high-priority cases and 
you know, if you want, we can hand those cases around the world, keep an engineer online as long as need be till we get that issue solved. Essentially, uh, Cisco TAC and the customer will try to allocate all necessary resources to get the problem resolved as quick and as fast as possible. Right, and I think that's one key part, too, is that when the customer opens a case, you know, they set the priority exactly. uh, based on their business description. But there is an agreement that if it is Severity 1 or Severity 2, not only is it impacting their network in a critical way, but they are agreeing to dedicate all the resources that they need, mm -hmm. um, that Cisco needs, in order to, one, get access to the network, two, to have somebody there and available around the clock, 24-7, exactly. um, as, as need be. So it, you, you can't really have a Severity 1, your network down, and then someone say, hey, it's 5 o'clock, I'm going home, and we're not going to work on this anymore, right? They, they don't quite equate. So Cisco does have some policies there about what, you know, sure, you can, customer can set the severity, but we have to ensure that, you know, they're going to be able to there to help us uh, resolve the issue. Exactly. And, you know, if, if your issue really isn't a severity one or severity two, we prefer that you set your severity to match really what the issue is, because if a high severity issue comes in, well, you know, a lot of us, if we're, you know, busy, we're going to try and allocate our work so we can get to that high severity issue as quickly as possible. Now, you know, if that high severity case that comes in is, in fact, not, uh, you know, a network down scenario, well, then, you know, we may be performing a disservice to other customers who are, you know, currently being worked with, uh, just so we can allocate time for that P1. Sure. And one of the things that we uh, touched on uh, just a moment ago is adding a lot of information to your case. When you open it over the web, as Dave said, you can uh, put attachments on the case and you can really fill it with a lot of information that's going to be helpful to us. When we pick up a case, we want to hit the ground running. So when we call you, we don't want to ask you what's wrong. We want to know what the problem is already, have looked through your data, and understand uh, kind of like a pathway that we're going to take in order to solve your issue. So some of the things that you can add are a big problem description, describing your entire problem, what you've tried so far, and what the outcome of that was. In addition, most of our products have some form of a show tech um, or a, a script that runs a lot of different commands on your, on your product and gives us a ton of information to start with. So that's one big thing. And the other big thing is logging. Any logs uh, surrounding the time where the failure happened or the issue that you're experiencing happened is very helpful. Right. So there's... Um, as Ben was saying, you know, the ideal case would be you, the customers, give us as much information as you have and the troubleshooting you've done, and our first contact back to you will be the solution, right? Whether that's you need to configure it this way, or it's a known bug upgrade to this version, or, hey, you gave me enough information, I've reproduced the problem in the lab, as we talked about in, in the past episode, and here's the bug ID, and here's what we're doing in the estimated time range to fixing it. So that, that's really the ideal case there um, that we want to work towards. Also, once, the, once you've opened the case, um, the, the TAC engineer will accept the case. And basically, from that point forward, that TAC engineer is assigned to own your problem. He's there or she's there to be a partner with you in your business to understand the impact, um, the severity of it, and also to uh, get all the available resources that they need, whether that be recreates in the lab, whether that be bringing in other business groups at Cisco, um, whatever it is, it's that tech engineer's job and responsibility to ensure that that happens behind the scenes and we are the interface, we being the tech engineers, are the interface to the customer. So we have a lot of things at our disposal to escalate issues internally. At the same time, we also have some tools that uh, we use to ensure that cases that have been opened previously, you know, uh, 
say, a few days ago or a week ago, that we can track those status and, and have other people reviewing them to understand, you know, is it on track? Have we gotten all the information we need? Is there any additional resources that we need to bring into play to get that case resolved uh, more quickly? And so that's, that goes on all the time behind the scenes, which customers don't see, but it, it does occur. So let's talk a minute about what would happen if you could not contact uh, the engineer assigned to your case. Um, so for example, if it's after hours, if you, it's 7 o'clock at night and your engineer is in Eastern Standard Time and you're experiencing a, you know, a bad network outage, the best thing to do um, is to probably call into the main 1-800-TAC number. Um, at that point, you would probably want to raise the severity of the case uh, to a P2 in a network degraded situation and ask to speak to the next available engineer. So then what will happen is that case will get what's called requeued to the, um, site, the TAC site that's currently active uh, for that technology and then a new engineer will accept the case. I mean, we try to limit the number of requeues that, that happen for our cases because when that does occur, the new engineer has to go through the case notes and bring themselves up to speed so that they understand what the current issue is and you know, what's already been done so they don't have to reinvent the wheel. This does take some time, so in general we advise should you, should you need to requeue the case, uh, you know, make it ultimately necessary, but if you don't have to requeue the case, wait till your engineer comes back on shift and uh, go ahead and start up with them the next day. You, they'll already have all the information going forwards. Right, and just to close, I mean, we, you know, TAC, we think of ourselves and, and we act more like an engineering center. So like Magno was saying, we take pride in ownership. We have everything at our disposal to resolve that issue. Um, so there's really, you know, a pretty much a negative benefit for transferring it from one engineer to the next. It, it typically does not speed up the resolution. The, the main reason you would do that is if the issue um, got worse. For example, you called in with uh, an issue that was a severity 3 and all of a sudden it became a severity 2 or a severity 1. That would be justification, you know, the engineer left. But, you know, if it stays at the uh, severity 1 or 2, then that'll automatically get uh, rotated. We have a handoff procedure to get it to the next theater. But if it's severity 3, it's much better to keep it with that engineer that's working on the case. Okay. So that's just a little bit about um, you know, how, how we do our jobs in the TAC and some things that you can do when opening a case to sort of speed up resolution of that. Okay, now let's begin the technical discussion of this episode. And what we're going to talk about today is transparent firewall mode. So transparent firewall mode exists on the PIX, ASA, firewall service module, and iOS firewall platforms. Uh, today we're going to talk about how it's used on the PIX, ASA, and firewall service module. So let's talk a little bit about how the uh, transparent firewall actually works. So the idea and the concept of the transparent firewall is that there are two um, separate layer two broadcast domains on either side of the firewall, on either interface of the firewall. The transparent firewall only has two interfaces, the inside interface and the outside interface. And the two interfaces, the networks on either side of the transparent firewall, on either interface, are in different layer two broadcast domains, but the same layer three subnet, okay? So the idea is that um, these hosts communicate to each other directly um, at you know, layer two. They're layer two adjacent devices, but it's the firewall that bridges those two distinct VLANs together into one. Right, and just to clarify that too, is if host A is on the inside, host B is on the outside, host A wants to talk to host B, host A would ARP for host B's IP, and that ARP will pass through the firewall. B replies, and A gets the MAC address of B, and then A forwards a packet to B's destination MAC. So the firewall in transparent mode doesn't play any role in that communication other than forwarding the packets on. So it doesn't respond with its MAC, the packet isn't forwarded destined to its MAC, it's as if the firewall is not even there. 
Yep. However, yep. it is separating those two networks and providing security for that communication. And that's why we call it a bump in the wire, um, because the two hosts on either side just have no idea that the firewall is there. So, for example, um, if uh, a customer wanted to protect a series of servers and their default gateway was a router, then one thing they could do was drop the transparent firewall in between the servers and um, the router. The servers, perhaps, on a switch would be on VLAN 5. The router's uh, interface towards those servers would be on VLAN 6. The firewall would have an interface on VLAN 5 and one on VLAN 6 and would be bridging them at layer 2. Right, and so therefore, on the servers, you don't change anything. You don't need to change the default gateway. You don't need to change anything at all. You just drop the firewall in the network and the communication works as before, except before the server can talk to the router, it has to go through the firewall. And even though we call it a layer 2 firewall, we're still doing all of our um, access list checks, uh, state inspection checks, things like that at layer 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. So the idea is that we still see cons built on the firewall, um, and we even now we even support doing things like translation on transparent firewall, so you can do NAT or PAT. That's a bit more of an advanced example, but you know we're, the, the firewall's uh, core functionalities are all still intact and uh, protecting your traffic. And just to reiterate, the one thing that you have to remember with the transparent firewall and that a lot of people have trouble with is that you have one layer 3 subnet that's segmented by two layer 2 VLANs, right? So the IPs on either side are in the same layer 3 domain. Right, and it's key that um, the segmentation we're talking about is, is VLAN or uh, VLAN separation on the switch because if you put the transparent firewall in, it, it has two interfaces and they have to be on two different layer 2 segments that it bridges. Otherwise, that the, the devices that are talking to each other on the same layer 2 segment wouldn't be going through the firewall. So by putting them in different layer 2 segments, that forces them to go through the firewall to communicate with each other. Um, let's talk about some of the, the reasons why you would want to use a transparent firewall, some of the motivations. So uh, for one, um, you can forward non-IP protocols through a transparent firewall. Okay. Uh, simple multicast forwarding, you know, if you don't have uh, you don't want to introduce your firewall into a complex multicast uh, network architecture. You can just simply insert the firewall at layer two, and it'll pass those uh, multicast packets without having to introduce it into like a PIM network or um, having to worry about IGMP. Um, a lot of our customers use transparent firewall to quickly implement security com uh, compliance. So, for example, if a uh, customer has to uh, put a group of servers behind a firewall for PCI compliance, they can do that easily with a transparent firewall, simply because it doesn't require that the rest of the network be re-IP'd or that routing changes be made on adjacent devices. So, that's great. I mean, Jay's uh, articulated a lot of the reasons why people can easily drop a transparent firewall into the network. The, the downsides or the limitations of the transparent firewall is it doesn't have every feature that the firewall does in routed mode. Uh, specifically, one of the main things that customers lose the capability of is to terminate land-to-land uh, -land VPN tunnels to the firewall. So both site-to-site -site VPN tunnels, easy VPN tunnels, web VPN, basically all VPN um, is no longer uh, when you move into transparent mode. Additionally, features such as DHCP relay uh, isn't there, but you can forward those DHCP uh, discover packets and the DHCP packets through the transparent firewall to the next top router to perform the relaying function, so that's not that big of a deal. Uh, dynamic DNS isn't supported. Dynamic routing protocols are also not supported. However, the dynamic routing protocols will pass transparently through 
the transparent firewall. So again, the, the firewall in transparent mode is essentially invisible. So your BGP session, your OSPF sessions, EIGRP, those will pass dynamically through the transparent firewall, but the firewall itself will not participate in those routing protocols. The one exception is ISIS. ISIS won't work through a transparent firewall, and that's because um, it uses the 802.3 frame format instead of the Ethernet 2 frame format. And uh, Ethernet 2 frame format, uh, which uses a, a type of uh, 0x0600 or higher, um, those packets are permitted, but the 802.3 packets are not. Um, multicast routing, so in addition to IP routing, multicast routing uh, isn't supported on the transparent firewall itself, but it does work through the firewall, and uh, QoS isn't supported. And I guess some other things, some other um, functions of the firewall I can think of. Uh, phone proxy uh, isn't supported. I'm trying to think of anything else coming off the top of my head. Okay, well, so we know some of the pros, some of the cons of using transparent firewalls. So now we're going to talk about a bit about how layer two firewall actually works. How are packets forwarded through uh, the transparent firewall and what can you expect when you add it? So with a routed firewall, you, when you're a, a routed hop, you're normally um, comparing, uh, you're normally doing a lookup on the route table inside the firewall to decide what interface to forward traffic out of. Instead, with a transparent firewall, we're doing a lookup on the MAC address table. And the MAC address table works similarly to a CAM table and a switch in, in this regard, in that the source MAC of each packet that flows through the firewall is then associated with that particular interface. So what does this do for us from a security perspective, since this is a security appliance? Well, you can add static entries into the MAC address table, and then if a packet comes through with a source MAC that doesn't match that static entry, the packet is dropped. So in that respect, we can, we can add static MAC address entries, and um, we gain that, that security ability. So we can also um, set a particular MAC address timeout so that when a MAC address is seen on a particular interface and it's been a certain amount of time, it can then be aged out and that MAC address has to be relearned. The default value for that is five minutes and we can go a max of 12 hours. And I, I want to just interject here because, so, you know, what we're saying is that um, that, can't, that MAC address table entry on the firewall will, um, you know, that entry is going to be there as long as we see traffic source from that MAC address on that interface. As long as the session is up. Okay, and so one thing I want to mention is I've, I've seen some cases where due to some uh, packet, the way the packets flow uh, through the network, through um, the transparent firewall, we've seen some issues where those MAC address entries might time out, not because of some problem on the firewall, but just because the firewall hasn't seen traffic from, uh, from you know, that host or that MAC address in five minutes. And then um, I guess we'll talk about this a little later, but then if that host tries to send a frame uh, to that address that's been aged out, that packet could be dropped. So one thing to do is if, if you notice that you're immediately having trouble with a transparent firewall, uh, after adding it into the network, you see sessions timing out, packets being dropped. One thing you can try doing is um, increasing the MAC address aging timeout uh, to something higher than five minutes, say 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and just see if you continue to have the problem at that interval. Now, uh, one thing that I've, I've seen some questions on was, you know, how do we deal with addressing the firewall itself? Uh, in routed mode, each interface is a layer three instance, as, uh, as Jay mentioned. But, um, you know, with transparent firewall, really you just have the concept of this bump in the wire. And <clears throat> Jay equated it to something very similar to a switch. So if you were to talk about how you do manage a switch, well, you create an interface on, you know, that layer two broadcast domain. 
And that's very similar in this, in this fashion, because with a firewall in transparent mode, you're addressing the firewall itself the context or you know that single firewall context, however you have it set up. You're not going on to each individual interface and configuring an IP address. Now, some people wonder why do we need this, fire, this uh, firewall to have an IP address if it's just passing, uh, just passing traffic through layer two wise. Well, uh, for example, if we don't know uh, where the destination MAC address is for traffic that's coming through, uh, well, Which could happen if the firewall just boots up right there. Yeah. The tables are in empty. So let's say you just start up, or for if the values have aged out due to timing, etc. Uh, what the firewall is going to do is it's going to generate an ARP request uh, and a ping to that destination IP address. And it's going to try and figure out what the next hop is Mac-wise. Uh, that generation comes from the IP address of the firewall. So that's one of the instances where you need it. Uh, the other is if you're doing something like syslogging from the firewall, managing the firewall via SSH or Telnet, uh, anything that would be to the box or from the box, uh, management or reporting. So you need that layer 3 IP address for the transparent firewall. Also, you're going to run into some times when you're going to need routes on the firewall as well. Uh, again, the handling of packets for through-the-box connections doesn't necessarily look at the routing table because that's through-the-box connections in transparent firewall. But if it's sourcing from the box, uh, you'll need to have routes in there for stuff like uh, the syslogs to go to management stations or for your SSH sessions to manage the firewall. Authentication for AAA servers. Authentication as well. Uh, one sort of corner case that uh, we run into sometimes with uh, cases is if customers are running some voice inspections. So this is sitting in front of their... Uh, you know, sitting between sites where they've got a call managers at different locations or phones are trying to pass through this, anything where you're going to have a voice inspection, you're going to need to have uh, the routing table on the firewall updated for all the hosts that are going to be involved in that. So phones, uh, call managers, all that kind of stuff. So, I, I mean, we've had probably two or three cases in the last month on this where a customer drops a, you know, they drop a transparent firewall into the network and then voice you know, the voice calls fail sometimes, uh, and other traffic flows, they work, and then, um, you know, once the customer adds the missing required route statements on the firewall, it all starts working. So why, I mean, wh what is it about those route statements that helps the firewall get those working right? So when we do these kind of voice inspections, we have to build child connections for, you know, the RTP stream for a call or open up additional uh, channels for H323 inspection, uh, H225. All of those, we have to essentially create these half-open cons on the firewall that allow this traffic to come through. For us to figure out what interfaces each of these endpoints exist off of, we need to know the routes. So without the routes, the inspections don't know how to build these, vo these uh, UDP cons for RTP streams, etc. Well, if, if it needs to build them, because if the, they have if the two phones one. are off the same yeah. interface, then you don't need to build the con because the traffic's going to be going between the two phones directly without going through the transparent firewall. True. So that the routing table is used to determine uh, if the con needs to be created or not. There you go. So uh, some people have a question with transparent firewall. What happens with failover? Because you're bridging two VLANs together on both firewalls. Um, and what happens is, is that, as you know with the case of routed firewalls, if the standby firewall receives a packet, that's a transient packet, it just drops it, it doesn't forward it through, and the same is the case with transparent firewall. So the standby firewall is actually blocking the loop, so you don't need, or the switch will not block the port 
due to a spanning tree loop because that never occurs um, because the standby fire will never forge packets uh, that are transient to it. So therefore, you'll only have one path between those two bridged VLANs together. That also brings up a question about BPDUs, you know. Uh, should BPDUs be passed through the firewall or not? By default, BPDUs are not passed through the transparent firewall, but you can configure it to pass BPDUs. And when you do pass BPDUs through, uh, the firewall will actually look within the BPDU packet and change the VLAN identifier as it traverses the firewall so that the switch knows that you know, it's receiving a BPDU on the same VLAN that that port is attached to. And therefore, your spanning tree on the switch can still come into play and kick in for the rest of your network. It's, um, and, and so that is a recommendation of what we'd like customers to do is enable BPDUs to have the switch protect against any type of loops that could get formed in other places in the network. Okay, so one other thing that we'd like to talk about is, Dave touched on this a little bit um, towards the beginning of the podcast, and that is uh, doing ARP inspection on the transparent firewall. So as Dave mentioned, ARP is passed through the transparent firewall, and uh, we're not a layer three hop, so we're not answering those. So something that we can do with ARP is we can inspect the response that comes back from uh, an ARP request. And if that response inside, if the, the IP and MAC don't match what we have in our static ARP table, we'll drop the packet. And this prevents issues uh, like ARP spoofing or ARP cache poisoning, like can be done with several uh, utilities out there, such as EtherCap. Yeah, I think I've used that before in the lab, and it's a neat way to trick um, clients on a LAN instead of sending their data, you know, destined for other places to the default gateway router, you sent you uh, man-in-the-mill attack and have them send the data to your MAC address. You modify or inspect or look at the data or whatever, and then um, that host then forwards it on. It's a, it's a pretty nasty attack, and so that's one way, you, um, I guess, ARP inspection is one way you can hopefully use to prevent against that sort of it. Yeah, I think Magnus has some real-world examples in that uh, yeah, well, area. All right. Well, I didn't bring it down, bring the lab down for that long. You know, we got it back up and running quite quickly. But uh, How about it's the airport. The oh, the <laughs> airport. Well, I I don't really think I can get into the discussion of what was going on there. But um, yeah, uh, you know, being a man in the middle is is a very interesting thing, depending on your audience. Okay, and real quick, uh, just briefly, we'll talk about some of the other features uh, you can add on the uh, transparent mode. So everything we've talked about today uh, is applicable for both the PIX ASA and the firewall service module. Um, specifically on the ASA and the firewall service module, um, we've added the ability to do some NAT translations. So the static command and uh, dynamic NAT were both added uh, in later versions of code um, so that you can actually do NAT in transparent mode uh, and you do NAT on the layer three uh, IP addresses in in the packet. It's a it's kind of complicated. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, it's actually not that complicated. It's just hard to it, it was hard, hard to visualize. To, it was very hard for me to visualize. Yeah, it's first. basically you know like you said, you, packets are passing through the firewall at layer two, but we can NAT them at layer three. Um, so there's no problem from the firewall perspective. It's but simple I mean, as NATing in routed mode. I haven't seen any customers or any cases. I've seen a couple. I've seen, I've seen a few. A yeah. Uh, that do not on transparent firewall. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I've but seen any. But if you're not familiar with it, the first time you see that in a customer's configuration, you know it's. Uh, it is a pretty complicated concept to grasp the very first time when you're yeah. talking about putting an IP that's not resident of that layer three domain on the network. So if you if you so you're segmenting two layer two domains, right? But you have one layer three subnet. So if you translate to an IP that's not on that layer three subnet. That's possible, but that's not a normal thing that you would well, do. Well, it actually is normal. I mean, if you think about the case of routed mode, you have an IP address 
say, on the outside interface, and it's very common to translate devices going through the box to some other network other than the one that's on the outside. So in the network. case of doing it in transparent, you still need the upstream router to know to go back towards the it's, firewall. Right, which is the same as in routed mode, whereas yep. if you're translating on some other network, that upstream device still needs to have a route to that translated network uh, directed to the ASA in routed mode, but um, in, in, uh, in transparent mode, that next top route has to be the device on the inside, the router on the inside. It just needs to pass the packet through the firewall in transparent mode for us to unmat it. So it has to get to the firewall. It has to, to get, get it to it. it. You don't send it to the firewall's IP like you do in routed mode. Mm -hmm. You just make sure you send it on the next top on the inside so it passes through. So a uh, couple of the other things, a couple of the other differences uh, between PIXASA and FWSM is that the FWSM in multi-mode, it allows you to assign each context as either routed or transparent. So you can have four contexts, two being routed, two being transparent. Whereas on the PIXASA in multi-mode, all the contexts have to be in the same mode, whether they're all routed or all transparent. Additionally, the FWSM allows you to have bridge groups within transparent mode. And basically what that allows you to do is bridge uh, multiple separate independent segments um, together. So it's, it, it's like having uh, multiple contexts in transparent mode, except for the fact that they're all within the same context. And in that case, all the traffic is isolated to just that bridge group. So you can bridge VLANs 1 and 2 together in one bridge group, and VLANs 3 and 4 together in another bridge group, and there's no way for the traffic from 1 and 2 to talk to 3 and 4 without going through some other layer 3 hop first. Um, so it's, it's a way of separating it. Um, finally, on the uh, ASAs, where we have dedicated uh, management interfaces, you can add a management interface into the transparent firewall and it will not pass uh, transient traffic. So it doesn't take part in the bridging of the two networks together, but it can be used as a dedicated way of accessing the box via that management port. So I guess without that physical management interface, if you want to manage your firewall layer three, um, I guess you, you send those, that, those packets, you know, SSH, Telnet, whatever, destined to the IP address of the firewall. That's correct. The single I, the, right. The, the single IP of the firewall that's bridging the two networks together. But in addition to that, if you have that physical interface, then you can have a second IP on the box that's assigned only to that physical interface. And then you can uh, tell that SSH or ASDM directly to that management IP. So the last thing that we want to talk about is uh, security modules in the ASAs. Many of our security appliances ha are modular and they do have a slot in them that accept an AIP, SSM, which is an IPS card, an intrusion prevention system card, and uh, a CSC SSM, which is a content filtering and uh, URL filtering module. So the, the question that we get a lot is, are those modules supported as they do upper layer modification and inspection, and this is a layer two firewall? And the answer is yes. Both, both of those cards are fully supported and have been since 7.1. Okay. All right, that wraps it up for Transparent Firewall. So uh, thanks for listening. Remember to send your topic suggestions and comments about the shows to securityshow at cisco.com. You can always open a TAC case at www.cisco.com slash TAC or by calling 1-800-553-2447, a.k.a. 1-800-553-CHIP. And join us next episode. We're going to be talking uh, uh, to a special guest from our PCERT team, our product security incident response team, and also we're going to be talking about firewall failover configuration and troubleshooting. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tax Security Show. To learn more about what was discussed in this episode, including device configuration and specific examples, and how to listen to other episodes, go to www.cisco.com go 
slash securitypodcast and navigate to the Tax Security Show section.